0: So Off we go and running here, July the 22nd, 2018, lecture discussion number 30, I hope, on the book of Joel. Might be, at least it's close, it's within a couple of numbers of 30. As always, we find ourselves with this big pile uh, to sift through pieces to to connect and to to, uh, just assimilate. And since this is a beautiful, hot, sunny day, no tie. The tie is in my bag because it was too hot to play banjo and wear a tie. I can't play the trumpet or banjo with a tie on. You're saying, well, you can't play the trumpet or the banjo. What does a tie have to do with anything? Uh, It's hard to argue that. But anyway, it's a beautiful, sunny day. We call this hot for you on the Internet. What is it out there? 65 degrees? It's killing us. Is it 70? Oh, my goodness. Oh, <laughs> well, that means if it goes over 70, only the most holy show up here and you can look around and see who they are. And so uh, knowing that, I know that ahead of time because I watched the uh, weather report. Uh, so therefore, I knew it was going to be a perfect opportunity to take on the more obscure questions that have accumulated. Defining obscure means uh, weird Okay, a little bit nuanced, certainly unusual, not u- not something that you're going to hear in very many churches. Uh, in other words, absolutely the same process that we do every Sunday. Now, there is no organized system to account for these kinds of questions that I'm going to cover today. In other words, I can't put them in some applicable order that makes perfect logical sense. I can't do that. I have to pretty much just pick them out and take them one at a time and by that I mean it's a nat by its nature it's going to be a discordancy, it's un unharmonious. Think fourth grade concert band recital. And that's what we got. Oh my goodness. I have something for you. It's on the second chair right here. So you can come and get it. I think you'll be really, really thrilled. I'm glad you came. We've learned who the favorite is, don't we? Yeah. Uh. I also wrote me playing trumpet and banjo. You're going to have this mess today of just a bunch of noise that maybe I can get it through to you and we'll see how I do. So the best plan when you when I'm going to take one of these on type lectures on today, uh, just grab a subject at random and just blast away. That's what I'm going to do. And for a long time, probably always in my so-called career, I have connected the statement of Christ to John 8:24. Yes, ma'am. Oh, I did forget to mention, I'm glad she said that, we have so many infants now. Have you counted them? Must be 75 or so. They just keep coming. Maybe 200. I can't tell. But we've got enough now that we need to start addressing baby dedications and um, baptisms. So um, let me know about that or see Anna because she has a plan as always. Where was I? I have forever, as long as I think the very first sermons that I've ever done, very first classes I ever taught, I connected the statement of Christ at John 8, 24. For if you do not believe I am, you will perish in your sins. I've always been angry, frankly, that they add the heat to it. I understand why they do it. But I also understand the motive behind them doing it, if that makes sense. They have traced it back into the Old Testament where I am, he is common. And then they have, but he didn't say that. He's God. He said, you must believe I am or you will perish in your sins. If you do not believe I am, you will perish in your sin. And I connected that to the I am at Exodus 3.13. As I said, it's probably one of the first things I ever did. So I put Exodus 3.13 and 14 side by side with John 8.24. And I believe that I did so correctly. And, and absolutely, it's something absolutely required for those who teach the Bible. That's what I believe. If you don't connect 8.24 John to Exodus 3.14, get off the stage. That's my opinion. So let's go ahead and look at Exodus 3.14 really fast. Because this. As you would expect, it's unbelievable. And God said to Moses, I am that I am. Now, you'll see it who I am. That's perfectly acceptable. But understand that the Hebrew will say that I am. And God said to Moses, I am that I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Because Moses asked this. Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God answers that question. Say to them, My name is I am that I am. Say to them, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, and here is the most important part of all of that, my view. Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. I am that I am. Say that to the children of Israel. Why does Israel want to know his name? Did you ever ask them? I am that I am has sent me to you. Back to John 8, 24. Jesus Christ said that he is this I am that spoke to Moses. I am that I am. Do you believe this? John 11. Now, obviously... I am that I am, you would expect that it would be incredibly complicated. And it is. It's a declaration. It's a proclamation. He is telling Moses something about himself. And he named himself this for a reason. It is obviously self-existence. He is saying that he exists. We don't have self-existence. You don't have it. I don't have it. What we have is imparted existence. Our existence has a source. God is saying, I am that I am, means that his existence has no source. It's inherent. It's transcendent. God is, the, is existence. He's saying, I am existence, and I am the only source of existence. I am that I am. That's what he's telling Israel. Again, why did, would they want to know his name, and why does he tell them this? Therefore, God chose to answer the, uh, the forthcoming question of Israel. What is his name? This is what he says. I am self existence." I am the origer, origin, the originator of existence. And that's my name. And I said, I read earlier that he gives more information. This is his name forever. And this is a memorial that he gives Israel. And by extension, us. So this is a memorial. It's a gift. He's telling us something extraordinarily valuable about himself. His name is forever, always, meaning that his name is eternal. His existence has no origin. His existence is indelibly established. It's inevitable. He has inevitable existence. His existence is not subject subjected. There is nothing it is subject to. His existence is preeminent. And therefore, he has to be, and he is, omnipotent. That is the natural logical progression. It may not seem so natural or logical now, but I hope it does by the time I'm done today. And he, God, Jesus Christ adds, I give this to you, Israel, and again, by extension to the church, as a memorial. You're supposed to remember that his name is I am that I am forever. Again, why? Put it another way or in other words. Our existence descends from his. Our our being comes from the fact that he has self-being. I hope that makes some kind of sense. All that exists, exists because he wills that it exists. There is no existence, again, apart from him. He is the origin of all existences. How's that for a word that may not be real? Israel was told that at Exodus 3.14. You see, here's, the, here's what you do. I, I try to get you to do it. Ask the why nots. Again, this is omniscient God. So this is the only name that he could give of himself to Israel. Period. This is the only forever name. It is the memorial name. But why didn't he say El Shaddai? Why didn't he say Elohim? Why didn't he say his name was Adonai? He did not. Because this is the one that works. You should know that I am the I am. I am that I am. You should recognize it as the YHWH, Or when you see it in the Bible, it is capital Lord. I am that I am. That's what Christ said. Christ said, He is the YHVH in John 8 24. That's incredible. Again, all the pastors out there that imply that Christ is subordinate or that Christ never claimed to be God, that's all Christ ever did was claim to be God. He never stopped claiming to be God, and He will never stop being God. Israel was given the YHVH, not El Shaddai, eventually El Shaddai, not Elohim, eventually Elohim, and not Adonai, but Israel was. So ask why? What's he saying to them? Exodus 27 says declares that no other has this name. You will not find anyone else who has the YHVH. He is it by himself. Exodus 6, 2 through 3 tells us that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were not given the name. They were not given, I am that I am. What's the obvious question? Why not? What is it the difference between Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who are the fathers of Israel, and Israel? Why was it given to Israel? And not to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Israel was given the truths and the promises of existence. Why? What would be the way to approach this? If I came to you and spent the whole day this week on existence, trying to convince you, not trying, but convincing you that you exist, what would I be doing? What would I be responding to? God does not respond. What do you think Israel believed at this point? Now, they came from Egypt, didn't they, where we have the mummies and the sarcophagus. Did you see that they found three soldiers in a sarcophagus filled with sewer water? Did you see that? 2,000 years old, but it had been permeated. Here's a here's something that you learn in the construction business. Uh, you were you learn cementuous, which means that water will go through your foundation. And if you don't have some kind of membrane or waterproofing system, it'll just pour right through and it's permeable. You learn that in the construction business. What do you mix with with cement and gravel to make concrete? Water. <laughs> So guess what it happens to concrete when it rains? It goes through it. You make a sarcophagus out of essentially some kind of permeable uh, dirt-based cement system, it's going to leak. My favorite story, I'm, now I'm going completely crazy. Did you see the people that buried a car? About I think it was the 1950s. They took a brand new, I, I believe it was a Mercury, probably not. I don't know for sure. But they took a very expensive car and they put it in concrete and they buried it in the middle of the city. Did you see that? And then after, I think it's 50 years, maybe 100 years. I don't know what it was. It had to be 50 or 60 years, 75 years. Some period of time, a great period of time. And then if you bought a ticket, you could win this car. And they dug it up. What do you think happened to it? Completely covered in sewage and to- totally rotten. So you want a rotten car, a little bit better than a banjo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, point is, is that uh, they, the three soldiers buried in the cement, and the water wins. Water wins. That's an important thing to know. Uh, you begin to understand why God uses water. Many, many reasons He does, because water will go everywhere. You can. Fight it, but it always seems to prevail. Israel was given the truths and promises of existence because they needed it at this particular time. And again, the Egyptians believed in an afterlife. Why is it that the Israelis did not believe in existence and they had to be rescued out of the darkness of Egypt? What is going on here theologically in this? in this society at the time, so he gives them the truth of existence. In Hebrew, it also carries in concert with existence. It it has this meaning of attachment to it, of movement or motion. In other words, movement is interwoven in this name. I am that I am has movement interwoven, connected to it, um, uh, inseparable or inseparable. The fact that movement. Is inside of existence is much to the dismay of Albert Einstein, as you may remember from previous lectures. Einstein believes that motion is an illusion. He doesn't believe it anymore, but he believed it at the time. I just want to point out that I am that I am is directly opposite of Einstein's position that motion is an illusion. Einstein also believed that free will was an illusion. You will see that the Bible uh, opposes this kinds of thinking. Ask again, why is that the point? And the point is, yea, a point, is that Jesus Christ assigns the YHVH to himself. He is therefore the one who grants existence, who has self-existence, who cannot not exist. Let me put this on the board and don't do it enough. Jesus Christ... is never not God. If you have any position at any time that puts him in a position where he is not God, you are desperately wrong. In fact, I'll go so far to say, if you have any any view that Jesus Christ is uh, not God, that is wickedness. That'll get me some letters. And that's what it is. I'm going to add this to it. Jesus Christ cannot not exist. He is the I am and you must believe it or you will perish in your sins. Why did he say that? Why can't you believe he's not the I am and still get saved? Because you cannot. You must believe he is the I am or you will perish in your sins. He must believe that he you must believe that he is the I am that I am, the Y H V H. You must believe in his self-existence, and you have to, I believe, understand the difference between us and him. To be self-existence demands it necessitates that nothing exists without the self existence. Apart from the self-existence, which now means that the self-existent one has to be infinite. And again, that may not be logical to you yet. I hope it will. I hope that may not be immediately obvious to everyone, but I'm hoping that I can make it obvious. And I realize that we, and we're the ones that have dependent existence or promised existence or imparted existence, we cannot exist apart from his existence. That's a whole bunch of existence words, and it gets to be a little bit overwhelming. I realize that. we, Those of us in this position, the finite position, we cannot readily conceive of self-existence. We can't do it, and we can't conceive of infinity for that matter, or omnipotence, or omniscience, or omnipresence, or omnibenevolence. But with a bit of reflection, it's my aim today, it will become clear that self-existence has all of these and cannot... Cannot not possess all of those. In other words, to be the self-existent one, you must be omnipotent. You must be infinite. You must have omniscience, omnipresence, omnibenevolence. There's no possibility that self-existence can be anything but all of those at the same time. And Jesus Christ makes that clear. He says that he is the I am that I am. Is that for me? Sometimes it is for me and people don't give me the phone. You know that? It's happened. Lori's sister called here. Yes, it was for me. She didn't know it. But that's for me and I want that phone. That's fantastic. How many knots do I have? Yes, Jesus Christ exists. Not exist. It's impossible for him to not exist. I could put impossible, but I really like cannot not exist. I was thinking t-shirts and monetization along with my Worcestershire sauce. Hang on. And... My point is, is that in order to have self-existence, all these other attributes that he says he has have to be there. In other words, omnipotence, omniscience, infinity, omnipresence, omnibenevolence. When you make the claim and it's true that you are self-existent, then all those other things have to be there as well. They're not, uh, uh, you cannot cleave them away. Okay. And if that's not enough to consider... The I am that I am is also specifically proclaiming something else. Christ is definitively stating that he is also the author of time. As you know, we have been beating this by we, I mean me, into you consistently. This, this miracle of time, this great mystery that is time. We just just accept, it's, we accept that it impacts us. We don't really consider what it is and where it came from and what it takes for it to be here. Christ is definitively stating that he is the installer, the institution of time. Time is subordinate to him because self-existence requires that time is subordinate to him. I am, at its essence, is a time reference as well as an existence reference. If somebody asks you what does I am that I am means, it means that he is the self existent one, he is the self being, he is a being because he wills to be a being, and that he also is the author of time. That's what I am that I am is declaring. That's what he gave Israel. How many do you think understood it? I'd guess probably zero, really close to zero. We don't see this discussed at any level until the Greek philosophers began to do it. Then we see it show up. I see no indication that the Hebrews understood what he was saying to them. I am that that I am is an existence and a time referral. He could have said, I am time. Christ could say that. But that's a redundancy, isn't it? hope you see that. I am time is redundant. All he needs to say is I am. It implies, it carries with it, that he is time. So, so far the lecture up to this point has mostly been a revisiting of previous lectures. And, and all of that I'm doing to remind you of the questions that are here now. The xeno paradoxes, if you will. For example, let me give you a xeno paradox issue or a quantum xeno effect issue. How long is an instant... Is motion an illusion? That's Einsteinian. Does God see movement? Remember these questions? Is time infinitely divisible? What does I am that I am mean as it applies to time? Those are the questions that we've been wrestling with over the previous Sundays. Now let's go, let's start there. Let's start with that last one. I am. Everyone knows it's rever- referring to, all of you know, all, everybody knows that it's referring to the divisibility of time, or the infinite divisibility of time. Everyone knows that. Just checking, okay. All of you know, yes, the head in the back is nodding. All of you know that when he says I am, he's also talking about how many pieces time is. Now, remember, he has to be infinite to be in the present. So, if he's infinite, then infinite divisibility is not an issue for him, right? If an instant is zero time. So, I'm going to suggest this to you. And I'll, I'll erase all of this. I should leave those. When you look up Zeno... On the internet, you will find the divisibility of time, or the arrow paradox, or how long is an instant. If an instant equals zero time, if that is your decision, I don't know if any of you have decided that, but let's assume that somebody has here. If an instant is no passage of time, then there is no motion in an instant. Does that make sense? If that makes sense to you, wow, I've hooked, now I'm doing good. You are now in real trouble. (laughs) If if an instant is no passage of time, then there is no motion in an instant, and as motion is measured, because motion is reflected against time, and if there is zero time, there is zero motion or zero movement. With me so far? Thus the next question, how long is the present? If the present is an instant, then what have you decided logically? If an instant is zero time... And the present is an instant. Is there any motion in an instant? Now you're thinking like Zeno. You should look him up. And then we go to this. Not only how long is the present, but if the present is an instant and and the I am is in the present, because I am means he's in the present. Then the question becomes, does Jesus, who is God, see movement? Or does all He see is instant? He is in the present, He is infinite. He can divide time uh, in infinite segments. What's the next question? If I divide time into an instant se- uh, infinite segment, how long is each infinite segment? How much time expires in an infinite segment? If I take time and a pre- the present and divide it into these into infinity, how long is each infinite infinite segment? Hopefully, it is logical that in order to see the present to be in the present, that requires infinity. That's what I'm trying to accomplish today, but I, that's kind of a digression, sort of maybe. Jesus Christ says to us in John 8:24 that He can dissect time into infinitesimal segments including zero time but let's assume for our little minds our little discussions let's assume that we did not pick zero time as an instant we said that an instant we said that an instant is a millisecond a millisecond is one 1000th of a second So that's what we've decided. That's an instant. Let's agree on one one one-thousandth of a second. If you want to do it this way, you can. Or 10 to the negative 3. All of that is a millisecond. Be happy. I could have made it a microsecond. But I didn't. That would be one one one-millionth of a second. And that's a lot harder math. That's exponential or scientific notation. As we learned last Sunday, and I have to—I have to, i haven't memorized this, even though I should. I, I do it. I round it off into three hundred thousand or three hundred million. But we learned last Sunday that light travels at two hundred and ninety-nine, uh, seven ninety-two, four hundred and oops, four hundred and fifty-eight meters in a second. So that's how fast. Light goes, so it goes two hundred and ninety nine million seven hundred ninety two thousand four hundred and fifty eight meters in one second. That is what they have decided that light is Now we had that discussion last week whether or not they can decide that. we'll get to that in the coming months as you are so excited about it. if you want I could call I could say it goes two hundred and ninety nine thousand seven hundred ninety two point uh, Four, five eight. Uh, I, I, I' probably said that wrong. It goes that far in a millisecond. Does that make sense? So no, I didn't say it wrong. So it goes 200, or 300,000 kilometers, if you will, in a millisecond. Or 299,792.458 meters in a millisecond. And we've decided that a millisecond is an instant. Nobody is awake anymore. Actually, by the way, oh. It's not actually a millisecond. It's 1.00692286 milliseconds. And that's what they have decided. Yes, you grab your head. I'm doing it to you on purpose. Or 1.00692286 thousandths of a second. And, and I wrote right, can we know this? But well, that's what they have decided. So I hopefully you are beginning to see the problem. I'm trying to raise the problem for you. And never mind all the math, but just think of it this way. A housefly has been determined to flap its wings in three milliseconds. Three thousandths of a second. Today's lecture will take three million six hundred thousand milliseconds. Those will be milliseconds that you can never get back. That's the end of that. We have decided, and by we I mean mostly me, that an instant is one millisecond. If I had a camera... And they exist, Sony makes one, for example, that can take pictures uh, at 1,000 FPS. Do you know what that means? It can take pictures 1,000 frames per second. So that means it can take a picture every millisecond. And we've defined our instant to be a millisecond. If that's true, and I'm not, I am not—I haven't seen the camera, I've just read about it. If it's true, that's incredible. Now, if I had this camera, and I don't, please, anyone want to send me a, this camera, it would be cool. No one will do that. They won't even send me donuts anymore. I mean, it's really getting bad out there. Canned food, good grief, we'll take anything here. We would like Kentucky Fried Chicken, however, have one, John in Pennsylvania sent us wonderful things. Anyway, he got tired of all the complaining about his food, I'm sure. If I had this camera, I, could be, I would be able to divide motion into one, one thousandth of a second. Do you understand that? I could take a thousand pictures a second. So I can, in one second of time, I can divide it into 1,000 pictures. I print them all out, hand them out to the audience. You will have one second and 1,000 photographs of that one second. So there you are with your 1,000 photographs. What are you seeing in your photographs? I have 1,000 photographs of one second of time. You're looking at the photographs. What are you seeing? And I'm trying to make you extrapolate and extend to what is God seeing. He is able to see in, infinite segments of time. I'm just giving you a millisecond, a, every millisecond. And you got a thousand pictures. What would you see? What would you see that you, you're going to look at frame one and frame two? You ever see those things in the newspaper find the differences between this picture and that picture you got frame 1 and frame 2 look for the difference ready set go can you see the difference between a millisecond of time from one now imagine if you have frame that's frame 1 and frame 2 could we detect movement said another way what would be the difference between picture number 1 and picture number 250 If you're looking at it, consider number one and number 250. That's a difference of 250 milliseconds. Don't write me and tell me 249. A human eye blinks at 350 milliseconds. you got 250 pictures there. Tell me the difference that you find between picture number one and picture number 250. God is saying that he is the one that put this system in place. Christ said, I am. That means he made time. That means he has to be infinite because it says he's in the present. How long is the present to God when he can divide it infinitely? Can we concede our inability to recognize an instant of change if we define change as, or if we define an instant as a millisecond? We would say that all the pictures are demonstrate nothing but motionless. We would say the same thing that Einstein said. We would say there's no movement in an instant. We would be in the Zeno paradox and does the arrow ever hit the target if it only goes a certain distance in a certain time. And that time is infinitely divisible and that distance is infinitely divisible. Does the arrow ever reach the target? Don't try that to to get on America's Got Talent. Did you see that? Oh, gosh. It amazes me how gullible this country is. First off, everybody on America's Got Talent comes from Great Britain. They've already seen them all. And if you don't think that's true, just look it up. They're all, they didn't find these people arbitrarily. They hired them to be there. Okay, it's a produced show. They can produce the show. They're trying to make money and they're trying to entertain you. I just wish they wouldn't lie. That annoys me. Anyway, a guy shoots an arrow. And he hits an apple. Did you see that? And he put a ring in the apple. No, he didn't. Don't be an idiot. But it's supposedly the arrow goes through the apple, gets the ring, and sticks into a target about 50, 75 feet away. And there's supposedly an actor put the put the, the, the apple on a plate on her head. And then another guy is holding the plate. And you can see the apple be cut in half by the arrow. Have you ever shot a bullet? I have at a pumpkin. Yeah, just, I enjoyed that kind of stuff when I was young, especially. You ever shoot an arrow at an apple? It does not cut the apple in half, cleanly. It just obliterates the apple. It has, a, you know, especially if it's a hunting arrow. This one was not, it didn't have the big blade, it had the, the target system, but it just blows it up. And then it drags it 40 feet as it goes off. The apple's a big pile of mush on the floor. This one was cut perfectly in half. Why am I doing this? Because I'm tired of people being fooled by churches. See where I went? Same kind of tricks go on in churches all the time. Anyway, everybody thought he was amazing. Well, he's he's just a complete fake. Vote for the little tiny girl that can't sing on key. At least you got something there. I think it's very important for the church to not be fooled by anybody. When you watch a magic show in Vegas, what should you immediately think? This is all a trick. My job is to figure out the trick. That's the fun part. It's not to be fooled and be wondered. (gasps) the lion disappeared there he is. okay that's digressing you are looking at uh, at if an instant extend the thought experiment if an instant now we define as 1 1 millionth of a second you're looking at 1 million sequential photographs of a 1 second event how much event how much motion did you detect did you see any motion? You looked at one million photographs of one sec- second of time. It could be me. I'll stand still. You see one, pictures, uh, one million pictures of me taking, taken in a second. How much change did you see picture to picture? And so, therefore, we have the most obvious of the most obvious questions now. You didn't see any change, did you? Did God see change? Yes, he did. He's the one that made this system. He's infinite. He can see infinite change. No matter how small you you think, it's undetectable. But if he has placed you in motion, then he sees motion. He also sees... Motionlessness. Does God see motion? Can Christ see the differences between frame one and frame one million? The change? How much change did Christ see? Does God see? And God can only see infinite change if He is infinite God. Unfortunately for us, He happens to say that He is the I am that I am. You notice that all we hear is screaming girls. Are they here in the lecture? Can the, can the supposed staff that's in supposed control of the children hear anything not anymore they're all deaf I just want to point out that the, are you hearing any boys scream no those are all girls screaming down there not true you say you're saying that I'm some kind of racist sexist that Facebook will take do you hear boys well I can't hear that frequency anymore. <laughs> You should see Lori when we get home. It's just hilarious. (laughs) Looks like she's (coughs) just completely blown up. It's very funny. (laughs) And we just sit on the couch and stare at each other and go, what were you thinking? (laughs) You know, last week she had 18 of them. 18. Does she? 18 of them down there today, too. God must hate her, huh? Oh. <laughs> she won't listen to the lecture this far into, it, especially after this first part. She had clicked that baby off. I got away with it. She'll never know. She'll never know that, that, that God is punishing her for her past sins, which is, of course, completely Ill, uh, ill-conceived. But I don't care now. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Find my place. Why? This is why I write it down. He he calls himself the I am that I am, and you must be infinite. To see the present. To be the I am. And he calls himself that. Can he simultaneously see movement and zero time at the same time? I know that simultaneously and same time is a redundancy. Again, I liked how the sentence sounded. Can he simultaneously see movement and zero time at the same time? Yes. That's inside of the I am. That's what being the I am that I am. That's what it means. It's inherent in the name. I am that I am. YHVH implies that he puts and places all things in motion. So he has to know what zero motion is to do that. The reference has to be there for him. He understands, and zero, of course, leads you into infinity. He must be infinite to put things in motion. And he likes motion. He puts time and motion together. He puts life and motion together. We interpret, just uh, now I'm going crazy, we interpret physical death as the cessation of motion. And is that true? It is not true. Physical death does not end motion. It only ends the, it's, we think it does, but you start getting to the microscopic level or the quantum level, what are you going to find? Motion. It's tremendous amounts of motion. The whole system is in motion at the microscopic, at the quantum level. He had to put that system in place. That means he must be infinite. At Joshua 10, famous place, right? 10, 12 through 14. The sun stood still, did not move. The moon stopped, did not move. And from the frame of reference, from the position of observation that Joshua has, the sun stood still and the moon stopped. Notice how I said that. Joshua is observing the sun and the moon from a stationary perspective. Remember that lecture? Everyone can claim stationary perspective. Joshua is claiming stationary perspective. And from his perspective, the sun has stopped and the moon has stopped. Joshua 10. We'll ask why next week. All observers can claim a stationary condition. I'll help you again. The passenger in the train sees the landscape as what? Moving away from him. He's stationary. He's throwing a a ball up in the air. He's stationary. As long as his velocity and his trajectory are uniform, he's stationary. He can claim stationary perspective or stationary frame of reference. The man on the field or on the platform of the the depot, he sees the train go by. He says he's stationary and the passenger is moving. The passenger is saying the man on on the depot is going backwards from him. Both of them claim stationary perspective. All observers can claim stationary positioning, again, as long as velocity and trajectory are uniform. And Joshua claims stationary observation, and he says that the sun and the moon are motionless. Are the sun and the moon motionless? They are to Joshua. Joshua. What are the sun and the moon, where are they? Here's your sixth grade astronomy lesson today. Where is the sun and the moon? From an astrophysics perspective, or from a cosmological perspective. It's in the Milky Way. As you know, the Milky Way is a candy bar. So it is in a candy bar. But it is in the Milky Way. Where in the Milky Way? Is the Milky Way moving? Yeah, it is. God is stretching the universe out. So, is the sun and the moon moving? Even if Joshua thinks it stopped, because the galaxy is moving. Let me ask another question: Did the Earth rotation? Did the rotation of the Earth stop? Because Joshua thinks the sun and the moon stopped, and he's right. From his perspective, he's absolutely right. He's claiming stationary perspective. And he says the sun and the moon stopped. Did the rotation of the earth stop? Why did God do this at Joshua 10? Obviously, he's the I am. He can do it. And it would make sense that he would put somewhere in his Bible evidence that he is the I am and that he has control of time. And he stopped this system that he put in place in Genesis on the fourth day, right? Right? Why did he do it? What does it mean that the Lord heeded the voice of a man? Oh, probably should read it, huh? Golly, it's so important. It just keeps eating up time. Here we go, really fast. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel. So he stands up in front of Israel. Sun stands still over Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the people had revenge upon their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jasser? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. So it stopped for 24 hours. It's called the lost day of Joshua. Though that's not accurate. And there has been no day like that before or after it. Duh! Again, did he stop the sun and the moon? Did he stop the Milky Way galaxy? If he stops the Milky Way galaxy, how many other galaxies does he have to stop? If he stops the rotation of the earth, what does that do? How about the the force that the, you know, as we said a few weeks ago, maybe last week, we can't measure meters to the North Pole correctly because the circumference of the earth flattens because of the rotational effect. So we stop the rotation of the earth. What's going to happen? There has been no day like that before or after it that the Lord heeded the voice of a man. What does that mean? For the Lord fought for Israel. It goes on to say all the people returned to the camp. No one was killed in that that battle of Israel. Every single soldier survived as hand-to-hand combat, face-to-face, knife-to-knife, sword-to-sword. Wouldn't it be handy if all the guys you're fighting were motionless? I'm not saying that happened. I just thought, wouldn't that be handy? It'd be a great slaughter, wouldn't it? We have somebody here that stops the rotation of the earth, stops the sun, stops the moon. And everything seems to function reasonably well. Why did he do it? What does it mean that the Lord heeded the voice of a man? Who else saw the sun and the moon stop? We always think of us. We always think we all uh, only us matter. Who else saw the sun? and the, It stopped for a day. Who saw that? Angelic hosts saw that. And they saw the first time that sun and moon were put in motion. And they knew why it was there and why it was put in motion. And now they see it stopped for a day. And that means a lot to them. Because they understand this 24 hour thing. The sun, the moon are established in Genesis 1:16 through 19 on the fourth day. The purpose was to divide the light from the darkness, which as you know, that's good from evil. Giving light, the greater light and the lesser light, ruling over the day and ruling over the night. All of those elements are there in Genesis 1 through 16, or 16 through 19. To repeat from an earlier lecture. Obviously, the witnesses to the establishing of the sun and the moon and putting them in motion were not animals or man. Because it happened on the fourth day. So he didn't put the sun and the moon up there for man on the fourth day. If he wanted man to see it, he would have put it on the sixth day. If he wanted animals, he would have put it on the fifth day. He puts it on the fourth day. There are no animals. There is no man. Who watches him do it? Only one group left, divided into two, two-thirds, one-third. And that's the fallen and the unfallen angels. Only the angels saw the sun and the moon, Job 38, 7, put in place and set in motion, only them. What were they thinking when God placed these pieces, the lesser light and the greater light, and put them into motion? What were they thinking? And certainly, naturally, the angelic host... Fallen and unfallen would interpret this act of God from their frame of reference. What I mean by that is that the angels would expect that the sun and the moon is applicable to them. Animals and mankind, again, yet to be revealed. So they see this clock put in place, this motion put in place, and they would go, this is for us. And I said weeks ago, it's a countdown clock, it's counting down. They would know that, I believe. I'm positive they knew it. They had seen this and understood that it applies to them. Let's put this in a different platform. When did God start the rotation of the earth? Before the animals and man or after animals and man? I have plants, I have grass, I have herbs that yield seeds, I got fruit, fruit trees. That's the third day, Genesis 1:11 through 13. There's no sun on the third day. What's the light source? The light source is what Christ says is him. The light of life. John 8, 12. He says he's the I am. He says he's the light of life. I'm time. I'm the present. I'm infinite. I'm self-existent. And I am life. I have the prime of all light. Prime. I have to put it on the board because people think it's prime evil. Prime of all light. The first Light, the self-existent light, non-particle light. So, the plants have light, but it's not sunlight. And the plants have all that light. And they begin to grow quickly, wouldn't you think? It's the light of life. And you can record the changes over time, can't you? You've all seen the stop action, uh, if you will, frames per thousand frame per second. Pictures of plants growing. It's amazing. They don't make you watch every one, every picture. They could take forever. But the plants have light. Is the earth rotating? On that third day, if not, the Earth is if the earth, the earth is stationary on that third day, one half of the Earth has got the primal light. What's the other half got? I know this from Genesis 1:5. He devotes the light from the darkness. One side of the Earth is light. What's the other side doing? Dark. And there's uh, therefore the crucial questions now flies up and hits us upside the head. Why did he do it this way? He doesn't put the sun and the moon until the fourth day, but he's got plants and light. He got light on the first day, plants on the third day. He wants to make sure you can see what's happening. Who's seeing this? The angels are seeing it. The angels are watching. This light hit the earth. They're going they know that's God. Light's hitting the earth, then they see herbs and plants and seeds and fruit trees. Now, they see it in the very basic system, but they see something happening. And they see this division of light and darkness. And then what comes next? The sun and the moon come. I another light source, two light sources. One to rule the night, one to rule the day. The sun comes. What do you think now? Why is he taking away the primable light? Why do I have this nuclear fusion ball of stuff? What's the point? Just leave the primal light. Isn't the primal light good at this light thing? Yeah, it's non-particle light. This is particle light. Why did I replace the sun or the primal light with the sun and the moon? And that ultimately sends you to Revelation 22.5. Why? As of Revelation 22.5, the darkness is removed permanently forever and no lamp is needed. No night, the sun and the moon will have served their purposes and are no longer necessary. They're put in place here. They're removed in 22 of Revelation. So what's the point of putting them there? Who is it for? Again, man hadn't been created yet. And there's hundreds of questions, but because we are all out of time. Let's just take a couple of them. As we run down this list, what are the purposes of the sun and the purposes of the moon? Why does Christ withdraw himself? He's the primal light and place the sun and moon in a a substitutionary role. There's a clue. Why does he do that? Why not leave the primal light and just initiate the rotation of the earth and he'll just light the whole thing? But he doesn't do that. He gives you a symbol of himself, the greater light. And do you see Joshua 10's involvement here, this supposed lost day of Joshua 10? God heeds the voice of a man and affects the rotation of the earth. So he stops what he's initiated. Why does he do that? He doesn't have to stop the rotation of the earth. He could stop the motion of the enemy. That'll worked great. But he doesn't. He stops the rotation of the earth, we suspect. We weren't there. I wasn't there. I'll have to see the video later. Where else in scripture does man, or I'm sorry, does God seem to be swayed or heed the voice of a man? Genesis 18. Abraham and Sodom. Obviously God heeding the voice of a man is somehow a picture of Jesus Christ. And we will need to explore how this is so. Back up a bit. The earth is formless and void and in darkness. Genesis 1-2. Covered in water. It's flooded. Is it rotating? Yes or no? Don't need to rotate it. It's covered in darkness. It's absolutely flooded with water. How dark is dark? Supper Dave came by and got uh, got the sermon ahead of time. You can do that. You can come by the house and help me put in windows and paint. And I'll give you five minutes of the lecture. Kind of a quid pro quo. That's Latin. That proves I'm educated. Or not. How dark is dark? How many photons, I'm going to put a photon on the board, ready? Okay, everybody see it, there it is. Everybody see a photon? How many of those photons are hitting the earth at Genesis 1-2? How many photons are life? When he says the, the earth is in darkness and is, it is formless and void, I want to know how many photons of light is on the earth at the time. If you say starlight, what's your problem? No stars. You say sunlight, no sun. Moonlight, no moon. How about an LED watch or a phone? Anybody? No photons of light. That's my view. I'll prove it as time goes by. Ha <laughs> ha, joke. Can the earth be seen in the condition it's in? Can you see pure, in pure darkness? I, I coached at Barnett High School I've been in the gym when the lights have gone out, not in the gym, in the office area. No windows, it's all concrete. Why did we do that at Bartlett? Ask me later. It's pitch black. I've been in the band room, no windows, pitch black. You can't see anything. No one can see, there's no photon, not one photon. Can God, He's infinite God, get rid of all the photons? Yes, He can, He's the primal light. Can the earth be seen? Who is present? Who could see it if it could be seen? Only the angels. Can they see the earth in Genesis 1-2? I submit that they cannot. I submit that not one photon of light is on the earth. Zero photons. Utter, outer, absolute darkness. Therefore it is invisible. Utter darkness is blindness. So, what is the subject? uh, I'm sorry, the subsequent obvious question now. Why has he put the earth in this condition where it cannot be seen by the angelic host? How can this condition be reconciled with Ezekiel 28 12 through 19, which describes the first Eden or the mineral Eden? Clearly there is light there. Now there is not one photon. If the earth is invisible, it is unseen. It is unlocatable. There are no stars, no sun, no moon, no light, zero light, not one photon. What are the angels thinking? Can't find the earth. No idea where it is. All that's there is complete, total darkness. God turns off the lights. What's the obvious question? Where else did he turn off the lights? How long have the lights been up? What are the angels doing during this time? They're groping around in total photonless, that's a new word, blackness. How long have they been like that? What are they thinking? And then what do they see? What comes next? What were the angels assuming when they saw the light hit the earth and the earth is still there? I'm proposing that they would believe that the earth has been erased from existence prior to that, but it has not. He just removed the light and he covered it in water and it's in outer darkness. Genesis 1-2 describes an outer darkness condition. Thus the next obvious question, where else in scripture does Christ talk about outer darkness? utter darkness. Where else does he do it? Matthew 8.12, Matthew 22.13, Matthew 25.30. That's where he does it. Christ used outer darkness to depict the lake of fire. Isn't that interesting? The everlasting fire prepared first for Satan and his angels, Matthew twenty five, forty one, the place of the cursed, the condemned. Notice the outer darkness sandwich that we have here. I have Genesis one twelve and Revelation twenty fourteen through fifteen. The Bible is in between. Boom. I go outer darkness, photonless dark darkness. I need to trademark or patent that word. And then again I have photonless darkness again. All over the Bible, you have men groping in blindness. Blindness is an incredible thing. Christ removes the uh, blindness from many, many people. He heals their blindness. Blindness is valuable in Scripture to understand what it means, what darkness means. Genesis one two is the first mention of darkness. Genesis, I'm sorry, Revelation sixteen ten is the last. It's the fifth angel. Christ puts the kingdom of the Antichrist into full darkness. The same full darkness that is, that's the fifth bowl judgment. The same full darkness that is at Genesis 1-2, where it is first described. The angels know what full darkness is. Why do they know that? What happened? And all of this gets us back to Shannon's letter from Texas. This full darkness connects to the sign of Jonah, the three days and the three nights, the three light periods and the three dark periods. We have the darkness on the crucifixion. How dark was it? What did he do to the earth at his crucifixion? How many many lights were there? People might have had fire, might have had candles. What's God doing? All of that gets us to these discussions and the resting of the ark on the 17th day of the seventh month. Resting. As Christ rests during his crucifixion week. And that will be fun to figure out. Something that we will have to figure out. And we shall do so next week.